2: Welcome to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name is Ellis Williams, filling in for Dan Lobby today. we got a loaded show for y'all. First, you'll hear a conversation I had with Mary Kay Cabot and Doug Maurice, centered around a column Doug wrote earlier in the week titled, How Baker Mayfield Forced the Browns to Focus and Create a Winning Team. It's an interesting conversation, first unpacking Doug's column before projecting forward about what it means for the Browns' options at quarterback both this offseason and going forward. We touch on Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, and, of course, Dak Prescott's most recent contract extension. After that, we bring on Tim Bielek to talk about the NFL draft. He's got an interesting cornerback theory that I hope you all stick around for. And also, NFL Network's draft guru, Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network, had a conference call today with national media, a call both Tim and I were on. We'll share insights on that and our biggest takeaways. Again, it's a loaded show. So without further introduction, here we go. All right, welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. We want to start with a column Doug Maurice wrote on Baker Mayfield and the Browns, and it really closed off our Bark Week with Baker Mayfield. And I was wondering, you know, on, on these podcasts, we try to have our conversations focus on Someone we're working on that week in Bark Week, and right now it's Nick Chubb, right? So I was like, how can we position this podcast? And for me, this is this is like the play action pod, right? Like it was Baker uh. Mayfield week, okay? See where I'm going with this? And then you had Baker under center; he was about to hand it off to Nick Chubb, right? But now we're running play action so baker's keeping it he tucks he boots left he's rolling and there's doug Maurice's story his column his what did it come out to doug about like one million words somewhere around there that you got out on, on baker in this quarterback situation is that what the final 4, was? 4, 4, Oh, it's just four thousand okay I read, 4, every, I read every word i had to take a few breaks no, i'm just kidding it was a great column you guys um how Baker Mayfield forced the Browns to focus and create a winning team. If you haven't read it yet, go check it out. Assuming you probably already have read it. If you're here checking us out every day, you're going to love this conversation. So again, this is a play action pass podcast. Baker boots left, sees Doug's story. We're going to drop it off to Doug here. Doug, it was a great piece. If you want to just have the floor talk a little bit about how you, you came to this column, uh, what you were trying to say, and how you think this relates to the Browns, stuff going on with Dak Prescott, and just the – concept of building a team around a quarterback in today's nfl
3: so i appreciate the play action thing uh, making an excuse for i just didn't get it done during baker mayfield's actual <laughs> bark week so i, I dropped got it you. on monday um my point is this and it's a point that i think i felt back in the day before the browns had a quarterback that the act of committing to a quarterback is in and of itself a worthwhile thing for a franchise to do separate from from how well the quarterback plays. And I didn't make this analogy in the piece, but I thought about it a lot. It's almost to me like getting engaged maybe, right? That you hope you get engaged and you fall in love. But if when you get engaged, you say to yourself, you know what? I'd like to lose a couple pounds before the wedding. And you know what? Like I'm really gonna really try to focus on my career and make sure I'm doing a good job at work because I maybe want to buy a house someday, right? And that you just, like you get your life in order because there's a marker. And if you are just kind of mucking around, I think franchises muck around until they commit to a quarterback and the best easiest way to commit. And it's not picking a quarterback in the back half of the first round. It's not a, maybe it's not a dart. It's not a Brady Quinn fell to us. It's not a homeless guy told us to take Johnny Manziel. It's a, we are in position to get this guy and we like this guy the best. If you take a quarterback because he fell to you, you're already in dartboard territory. Doesn't mean it can't hit Dak Prescott's an example. But often, it's committing to it. So by my calculation, the 2013 draft for quarterbacks was a mess. That was when E.J. Manuel was the first guy. It was the Geno Smith year. That doesn't count. 2014 on, 23 quarterbacks taken in the first round. I would argue 17 of the 23 quarterbacks taken in the first round, it was good for the franchise. Now, doesn't mean 17 out of 23 worked out as quarterbacks, but it made franchises get themselves in order and often the quarterback hit, and sometimes Marcus Mariota to Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee, Jameis Winston to Tom Brady in Tampa. There are examples where you get in order, your quarterback fails, and you slide somebody else in, and you're ready to roll, which is why if I were the Chicago Bears, I would do whatever it takes to get Russell Wilson. You're there. You're in. You build a defense to complement Mitch Trubisky. You hired an offensive-minded coach to complement Mitch Trubisky. He didn't work. Your position do whatever it takes to to get Russell Wilson. Because if you don't do that, the act of randomly chasing a quarterback, and as I laid out in the piece, the Browns used six early picks in the previous 11 years, trying to get a quarterback, that's loss of value. So sometimes teams are reluctant to trade up. You don't want to trade too many picks. You're wasting picks, chasing maybe quarterbacks. Go get your guy. The act of doing it is good in and of itself. And also there's a lot, I think, to syncing up your quarterback's progress and your team's progress, which I think the Browns have done very well with Baker Mayfield. They're on the same timeline now franchise success, quarterback success. So that's the main overall thing. And to me, it'll, it'll affect how I view quarterbacks forever. You're never wrong. You're never wrong. The Rams traded up for Goff. He kind of flamed out. It was still the right thing to do. The Eagles traded up for Wentz. He kind of flamed out. It was still the right thing to do. And I think examples like that will keep happening.
2: Mary Kay, there's a lot to unpack there. It's the reason we're having this conversation. One thing I thought that was really interesting that Doug laid out there was the muck that is created when you don't have that franchise quarterback, or at least don't go after him. You, of course, have lived and worked and made a profession out of covering a lot of that Browns muck prior to Baker Mayfield arriving. So my question is this, how much credit does Baker deserve? And just the decision, like Doug's saying, to address quarterback, be aggressive quarterback, take quarterback number one, how much did that influenced the Browns to, for lack of a better term, grow up as an organization, much like Doug pointed to the Bucks, the Titans, the Rams, you mature as an organization, you build everything around you. And then regardless if the quarterback works or not, you made that progress. Is that the lineage that the Browns can follow in first, you know, 2019, and then realizing they probably made a mistake and then getting Kevin Stefanski in here in 2020?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he I think he makes makes a great point that the quarterback does forced you to get your act together. And I think the way that the Browns really got their act together this year is that they then, after all the other things that they did, including, you know, 2017, getting Miles Garrett with the number one overall pick, this year they really took it to heart uh, to support their young quarterback. And I think that's so vitally important that you really have to then surround your young quarterback with a really good offensive line, first of all, Uh, and, you know, then the other pieces that you need. And then of course you want to hit on the combo of the coach and the quarterback, but you really need uh, the whole picture. And we're seeing that now with teams like the Texans. I mean, you can't have an elite, amazing quarterback like Deshaun Watson and then not have enough other things around him to make it work. So it's got to be, it's got to be the whole package. Uh, And then, and then you see, and, and we will find out, we will soon probably find out if Carson Wentz is just a bad quarterback, or if he ended up in a bad situation last year. And if he can be salvaged this year, when he lands in a team that kind of has everything together. I mean, the, the Colts really have a nice program there. Uh, you look at a, a team like the Cowboys, the Cowboys have, you know, they had a really good off a good pass offense, but they had a horrible defense last year. So you, you really need to try to get it all together at the same time. And you want to get it together at a time when you can afford the pieces around the quarterback. So you, want to try to marry it up with when your quarterback is not going to be breaking the bank. And pretty soon, Baker's going to be breaking the bank. But I also think he's going to be breaking the bank at a time when the salary cap is going to go up considerably, and the TV contracts are going to make it possible to sustain the type of talent that the Browns now have. So I I think they're well-positioned for sustained success.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And, and Doug, I want to ask you about both the, the ability to sustain success and how that's related to the quarterback, but also when you mentioned that you thought that Baker lands somewhere in between, you know, like, of course, it's not the, the Hall of Fame once in a lifetime talent of Mahomes or Watson, but it's also not the, the cautionary tale of Goff or Wentz or even the, the Mariota and Winston. I thought that was really interesting. First, how did you land there and what put, had you put Baker Mayfield in, in that, in that middle ground? Because I think there is a, that's really where we exist right now. And for you to put that on paper and on the record, I I thought that was interesting.
3: I just thought it. So I wrote it. I mean, honestly, (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, I just don't, I don't know that anybody would, I mean, I think Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson are like, two of the five best quarterbacks in football, right? So I like that's I just don't think he's that. Uh, maybe he'll get there. I'm not expecting him to get there though. But I'm not anticipating any problems with Baker. So there's no guarantee. And I don't know that that, you know, after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, I'm not sure anybody would have anticipated problems with Carson Wentz. But I think in the end we have some proof that Carson Wentz was like a locker room issue. At least when it got south, he he went a little south. And Jared Goff I think is a little more limited in what he is as a quarterback. I just think Baker is efficient. He's not going to be spectacular, I think, to the level of Patrick Mahomes throwing passes behind his back, right? I just – I don't think he's going to be that. But he's super efficient, and I don't – at this point with him, I don't see, like, the obvious red flag that would lead us down Winston, Mariota, Goff, Wentz Avenue. So I'm not going to assume it, right? I'm not going to – and I'm not going to let it affect my thinking and make me be reluctant about the Browns quarterback just because Carson Wentz turned out to be a ding And because Jared Goff, I think maybe athletically, just is not what Baker is, right? So it's hard. Everybody wants Patrick Mahomes. Few people get him. So I'm very comfortable with the Browns. And I don't mean this word. This is the wrong word. I'm going to use the word settle. And that's the wrong word. I'm, I'm very comfortable with the Browns going all in with Baker Mayfield. Because I think if like you just, what do you, I mean, what do you do? You know, chase Patrick Mahomes? What what does that mean? I mean, how do you even do that? So he's your guy. I mean, he's your guy. And I would argue even to some degree, I mean, again, this is, I think, the second part of a second column, right? I think there might be inherent value in committing the money to the quarterback. Because at some point, if you don't give him the extension, you create the, well, what do you think of him? Well, do you believe him or not? What's he have to prove to you? And it's like, you know what? Give him the money. And if he bombs, he bombs. We'll reset, Right but I think there's value in the message you send, both by drafting them and committing to them. And then maybe by paying him. And there's just not a part of me that would be reluctant to pay Baker Mayfield. I'm ready to pay him.
1: So you're ready to pay him now, Doug, would you go ahead and do that this off season? So the thing is, is I'm dumb and I
3: don't really understand how football works. So <laughs> like the actual dollars and the actual time frame. I'm not concerned about, which is like, what do you mean you're not concerned about it? Andrew Barry, it's all he thinks about. I get it. But am I insisting they have to do Baker now? No, I'm not insisting. Am I holding off because I want another prove it year from Baker? No, I would be ready. So like, I'm fine either way. I'm like 95% sure he's going to be their long-term quarterback. So I, from my perch, and. I almost would ask like, what is the real, I guess the question is, is the only reason to not do him now, the 5% that you're making sure it wasn't a fluke year, that he's the real deal? Or is there anything else structurally with money, with roster management that would cause you to hold off? Cause I'm all ears for that kind of stuff.
1: Well, yes, there is. There is a, an economic decision that does come into play right away. And that is the upfront signing bonus. So it's actually, you know, cutting a check for whatever the upfront money is, which nowadays is an enormous sum of money. Uh, So it's really the cash outlay in in this offseason that that would come now. Uh, So so that's one thing to consider. uh, And it and that happens in a year in which You know, it was just a a weird year financially. Uh, So that's one thing to consider. And, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to consider is, um, from Baker's standpoint, actually, if they get these astronomical television contracts and he goes on to have a better year than he did this year. I mean, Dak bet on himself. Dak Prescott bet on himself. And his payday went up. So what happened with him is he bet on himself and he made more money and Baker can do that too because he doesn't have the resume yet that even a, um, that even a Josh Allen, even a Josh Allen has or a, uh, or Lamar has right now. Mm-hmm. So, so those guys potentially could do theirs. I think Josh probably will do his this off season. Lamar, maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, Baker Baker can make more money by going out next year and playing lights out the whole year instead of half the year, making a Pro Bowl and taking the team either, even deeper into the playoffs. If he does that, then, then he's a $40 million a year guy. If he does it this offseason, he probably is somewhere in that $35 million range guy. And I'm not talking about one five million dollars total we're talking about you know more like whatever 20 30 more million dollars that he could make if he goes out and has a great year and he bets on himself i mean we know baker if you tell baker he can't he, he's going to go out and, and do it mary so, oh, go ahead
3: there's Doug. a point i want to make I, I i just and i don't mean this to come across the wrong way i do think sometimes like all the dac talk right I mean, the only question really that fans care about in the end, is he going to be the Cowboys quarterback or not? If you're a Cowboys fan, is he going to be their quarterback? So I do think there are times, and, and ESPN and the places that talk about this stuff ad nauseum, right? I mean, on every show. It's like, I don't care if he makes $35 million or $42 million or $39 million. I guess I care in terms of what it allows the Browns to do or not do with the rest of their roster. The only thing that I really care about and the fans really care about in the end, is he going to be the quarterback or not? So I don't care if he finds this, if he signs this off season or next off season, I don't care if he makes 35 million or 40 million. I'm just wondering if he doesn't sign now, is there a world where the Browns change their mind? Like what would have to happen? Is there a world where it's like they go four and 12 and he throws 13 touchdowns and 31 interceptions. And they're like, yeah, my God, we don't want this guy. Cause that's like the golf once conversation, right? Is that you commit to a guy and then you decide you don't want him anymore. Like that's what I'm not afraid of. I do, I am not afraid of the world where the Browns decide we don't want him anymore. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that could happen. So the machinations of money, timing, whatever, that's gravy to me. And I understand that it matters because of course it matters. But that's the thing to me. When I say, I don't think he's Wentz and Goff, I don't think he's going to play so poorly or be such a knucklehead that the Browns are going to be like,
2: yo, you not our guy. Mary Kay, how do the Browns avoid a Dak Prescott situation?
1: Well, first of all, I I just wanted to respond real super, super quick to to what Doug just said. And I get what you're saying, Doug. I completely 100% get what you're saying. But I will also say that in the moment when Jared Goff sat down at that desk and signed that big old blockbuster uh, extension. And when Carson Wentz sat down and signed that blockbuster extent, extension those years for $33 million and $32 million, there was no way in heck those football teams thought for one second that it could go wrong the way that it did. It just wasn't not in the thinking of anybody, right? I mean, didn't we think Sean McVay was brilliant And Jared Goff was amazing, and they made this wonderful pair. And didn't we think similar things with with Carson Wentz? And teams went to Super Bowls, and they were going to Pro Bowls. I mean, there there were really no telltale signs that things were about to go so south at that moment. Do you think there were?
3: Uh, I'm not arguing. I guess I wouldn't argue that, but I guess I would argue, so what? But, like, why should that matter to the Browns? Jared Goff and Carson Wentz aren't their quarterback. I mean, like, people screw up all the time. I I don't – it wouldn't affect my view of my guy because that didn't work, I guess, is my main point.
1: Well, I I just – I have written this several times. And even though Andrew Berry said that Carson isn't a cautionary tale and Jared wasn't a cautionary tale, I maintain that those are cautionary tales. That those are cautionary tales because there's no – reason that you have to do this right now why not see make sure that what you're seeing and what you're believing is what it's going to be and the only reason why I say that is because teams this you know they this was their first year of really seeing what Kevin Stefanski and Baker Mayfield were going to do together and although I think we all have every reason to believe that it's only going to get better why not make sure and i do think there is that element of let's make sure that teams don't catch up to you know the the baker mayfield plan from last year they're going to dig into the film they're going to see what they can take away let's make sure that they don't take so much of it away that it's not as effective that it's not getting us to the afc championship game and the super bowl let's make sure that it is going up a notch and, and getting better. So I do think that those are cautionary tales. And I still also think that even the Deshaun Watson situation is a cautionary tale. Now, do we, because do we, do we, like, I was just going to say, do we anticipate that, that for some reason Baker Mayfield is, you know, that something weird and fluky like that could possibly happen here? No
3: that's the worst run franchise. The chaplain's in charge of the team. As long as the Browns don't put the chaplain in charge of the team, the the Texans have nothing to do with the Browns.
1: Right. But the point is something completely unforeseen, something really, really unforeseen happened with that whole situation after this early extension was signed. Nobody, and I'm not saying that that kind of situation would happen here, but if, if I were, If I were the person running the Cleveland Browns, I would hold off on the extension until after the fourth year. I would want to see what the salary cap is. I would want to see how the fourth year goes. And I don't care if I have to pay him more money after next year than I had to pay him after this year. I want to see exactly what I have in my quarterback in the second full year in a system When not only should he be better in it, but other people will know how to attack it and break it down. And if I were under the gun and I had to do it now, I would do it. But I'm not going to do it just because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. That's not how I'm going to run. But you're
3: not doing it because Carson Wentz and Jared Goff sucked. If 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 Carson Wentz and Jared Goff were awesome, still would you do it? I. So here's my other point. Here's my other point. Guess who might win the Super Bowl this year? The Rams. They signed Jared Goff. He wasn't worth the money. They got rid of him. They gave the Lions a couple first round picks and they're sliding Matt Stafford in to try to do exactly what Ryan Tannehill did in Tennessee and what Tom Brady did in Tampa Bay. And my point of that is, I think there's inherent, like it's still, you're still okay. That's the thing. Your franchise is in such a spot that I think you don't have to live in fear because As much as you rely on the quarterback, if you get everything else in order around the quarterback, you can survive even if the quarterback goes south. So like that sounds crazy, right? But we're acting like Goff and Wentz are worst case scenarios. Wentz was a locker room ding dong. He and Doug Peterson apparently wanted to kill each other and they got rid of both of them. I mean, if that happens, that happens. If the Browns put the chaplain in charge and they scare off the best player in franchise history, Okay those are both bonkers scenarios. I think this, I think the Rams one is, is a possible thing to be wary of, except they're fine. They are, they have a great team and a great coach and they think they are a Super Bowl favorite right now. So like even the quarterback going South, isn't the worst thing in the world, which is why I would not let signing Jared Goff keep me from signing Baker Mayfield. If I wanted to do it otherwise.
1: But but the question that I would have for you is why? What would be the pros? And and you know what they might do it. I mean, they, I'm not saying that Andrew Berry agrees with what I'm saying. They might go ahead and do it. Absolutely. They might get caught up in extension mania. Dax signs. Dominoes start to fall. Josh is going to be you know in the middle of a press conference somewhere and their fans are going to be cheering and, and they might get, get caught up in it. But my question to you is why would you do it now when you can wait with no detriment to the club that I can see?
3: And I've argued that too in the past. It's like, what I thought it was, I thought that five years for rookie quarterback, why is everyone going nuts after three years? Because I don't understand football. There's two things I think that would be in play. And again, actually Merrick, because the, the, the Deshaun Watson scenario you're presenting is a reason why Baker wouldn't sign. Right? So there might be, okay, if if Baker takes Deshaun Watson as caution, hey, you might sign with the franchise and the franchise loses its mind. And the Browns take Wentz and Goff as caution, then they both might they might be equally happy to do nothing right now. And it's fine. I think there's two things. One is if you sign Baker Mayfield, he's not trying to prove anything this year. He goes into this year when you should be thinking about getting to the Super Bowl with a clear head. They love me. I love them. I'm here no matter what. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. If I play well or don't play well, it's not going to affect my pocketbook. I'm just trying to win games. Small, small, intrinsic thing there. And then the other thing is the thing you said off the top, which is Maybe they get him for $35 million now, and if he's awesome, they pay him $40 million later. And we know Andrew Barry has said he would like to be proactive and aggressive with re-signing their guys and get them early. So, you know, roster management down the line, if Baker is willing to do it now, and you both believe in Baker, but you know what? You're saving some money before the quarterback market goes even nuttier than it just did with Dak. There is some value to that. It's not, it's not the make or break, you have to do it now. But as Andrew Barry manages this team, I think that will enter his thinking at least a little bit. Now, neither of those two mean you have to do it. And I'm okay if they don't do it. I'm okay if they don't do it. Right. But I just don't want them I, – I would not want, in the end, the reason they don't do it is because Carson Wentz is a ding a That's all. Make your own decision because, bottom line, I you have to commit. I mean, bottom line, you're getting – I mean, right – Again, because I think it's what? I think it's a 2% chance. The window that you're leaving open, Mary Kay, the worst thing is he's no longer good. And you've just committed a boatload of money. And in year four, he actually showed you he's not a franchise quarterback because the league caught up to him. All the stuff you're saying, Mary Kay. No. It's possible. Yeah. I, I, just, I just don't think it's And Why do, as Alice said, Alice tries to make me have reasons. Because I think it. <laughs> That's all.
1: So, and to your first point, there's another way to, to look at this and I, once again you probably will disagree with me on this. But and I understand what you're saying. Go into 2021 have nothing to prove and have this completely behind you and you're set and we have shown faith in you and we've given you all this money. But if you just look at it from the psychological standpoint, Baker Mayfield in my opinion, operates better when he thinks that his back is against the wall, or when his back is against the wall, when he has something to prove, when he has the world against him, when he has to bet on himself, when everybody's telling him that he can't, when you light a fire under his ass. So from that standpoint, I actually think that you would see a better Baker in 2021 if he knew that he had to go out and knock it out of the park every single week.
3: It's the, it's, do you want chip on the shoulder Baker? Or do you believe that would put pressure on Baker? Right. And I think his past would lead you to your point, Mary Kay chip on the shoulder. I'll show you, I'll prove it to you. Baker Mayfield is a pretty good Baker Mayfield. I also, and I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it's wrong. If he throws two picks in week seven, somebody's going to ask him, do you think this affect your contract status? If he throws four touchdown passes in week four, someone's going to ask him, do you think this should prove that you deserve Dak Prescott money? And if you sign it, it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying it's reality. And I'm saying, do you pay a price to get it out of the way? Uh, maybe well, not. Maybe not.
1: You know what? Here, here, here's the way that you avoid that you have to manage the message if you if this is what you're going to do as the football team you have to shape and manage the message and you just have to say we're picking up the fifth year option and we plan to do the contract after his fourth year you basically have to say that's what we're going to do and for the most part covering teams i mean most of the time you don't talk contract during the year if it's not done usually, and you know it's not going to happen until after the year because the the club has kind of, you know, squelched that until after the season. Generally, those contract questions and the distraction of a contract doesn't come up in press conferences. Now, we would be writing about it for sure. We would be writing about it. So from that standpoint, it could become a distraction. Uh, But it wouldn't be something – I really don't think it would be something that we would be – asking him about after four interceptions or whatever. And the the Colts, and this is another, I mean, in trying to read the tea leaves, this is what the Colts did with Andrew Luck. And there, there was really no drawback to doing it this way. The Colts picked up the fifth-year option, made it clear, we're doing this after year four, and they went about their business. They signed him to the contract after year four, and there was no problem with it. Whatsoever, This is basically almost a recent trend uh, to go ahead and jump into this marriage, this long-term marriage after the third year. It really wasn't always done this way. And because Andrew Barry and Ryan Grigson were there when they did it this way with Andrew, and there, was, there were no drawbacks to doing it that way whatsoever, I think they will at least consider doing it like that.
3: I have no problem with that. If that's how it unfolds, great. I also will say before this last season, people were having a lot of conversations about how in year three, this was like a make or break year for Baker Mayfield. And I spent a lot of time saying, why? What are you talking about? He has a fourth year. If he's just average in year three, then he'll just he'll pick up the fifth year option and they'll do it in year four. So that's where we are now. It's like, okay, that's fine. There are a lot of people who thought, oh, Baker better be great in year three or what's gonna happen? I don't know, nothing's gonna happen because they're not gonna do anything with the contract
1: and they're gonna wait until after year four. So it's fine. Well, but you know what, though? He, truthfully, if he had flamed out this year, they wouldn't pick up the fifth-year option.
3: What rookie quarterback who was picked in the top ten of the draft hasn't had his fifth-year option picked up?
1: Um, Has that ever happened? I mean, like, what, that doesn't ha- – nobody does that, right? What about Tannehill? When was Tannehill picked again? I forget.
3: He was picked eighth in the Johnny draft. Okay. I just don't think it happens. Like, I don't, I mean, I get what you're saying, but like, if he would have been terrible this year and you ever wanted Kevin Stefanski in a pandemic, they would have said, man, the guys had three coaches, four offensive coordinators in three years. We're picking up the fifth year option. We're not bailing. We're going to see, like, I just think, so in the end, we're back to that. Okay. Third year was good, but you fourth year is a sort of a, either a prove it year or a reaffirmation year regardless. So anyway, now we're arguing things we argued about 10 months ago. And (laughs) Ellis is the host and he hasn't been able to talk for 20 minutes.
2: No, we, we, we got a break to fit in here soon, but I do want to ask you guys something. I want to try and solve this problem real quickly before we do go to that break and switch gears. I think I'm going to solve this Baker Mayfield conundrum quickly here. And I'm proposing something that really has no track record in the NFL, but that is what forward-thinking front offices do. And I think the Browns have an opportunity here to perhaps make some history and redefine the upper middle class of quarterback in this league. What if the Browns just brought Baker a contract for say 26 million a year signing bonus of like 40 million, something like that. And just said, that's our line in the sand. I've got a list of 15 quarterbacks we think are better than you, whether it's for attribute reasons or things that they do in their offense that puts more work on their, on their plate, because of the things we do for you, we know that you benefit us. We benefit you because of all this. Here's 26 million per year line in the sand. The Browns have an opportunity to, like I said, redefine the upper middle class, of quarterback who says no in that situation. Is it Baker's agent? Most likely. Why does that proposition not work for both sides? Cause really the conundrum is this, Baker's may not be worth the 35 million. If he outplays it now, we're talking about upwards of DAC money or this just gets ugly and, and he isn't what he is. Why, why is that upper middle class, new frontier of trying to define an NFL quarterback, an option for Baker Mayfield and the Browns. Mary Kay, you're already shaking your head. How come? You know I'm what? also there's shaking a, my head. Yeah, I mean, there's Let's no
1: way, there's no way that the 2018 number one overall pick in the draft who just went 11 and five and took his team to the final eight with an opportunity to do better in next season is going to settle for a well, 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 below, below, market value average of of 26 million dollars a year there's just no way that would happen knowing that he can make potentially 40 million dollars a year next year and maybe even 35 there's just no way he would do that
3: if i'm the browns there's no way i want to come i want to bring anything to baker mayfield that says you're the 15th best quarterback in the league you have to accept the browns are going to overpay him overpay him based on pff based on dvoa based on whatever based on that Mary Kay Ellis, Doug quarterback rankings that say he's the 12th best quarterback in the league. They're going to pay him like he's in the top six. And you have to accept that because he's the guy they have. He's the guy they're winning with. They're not getting Patrick Mahomes. And that like worth doesn't matter. Like that's not, there's a, a franchise quarterback premium that you know what? Again, the Browns should get down on their knees and be happy to pay because overpaying a franchise quarterback you're at least in the realm of good problems to have. Ask they haven't had a quarterback to pay in two decades. That's the problem when you don't have anybody to pay. They just can't like I guarantee if people do lists of like overpaid NFL players, Baker Mayfield's gonna be on that list. Because he's gonna be paid like he's Patrick Mahomes when he's not. But tell me what the other option is. There is no other option. It's okay. They'll pay it and they'll be fine.
1: Right. And and here and and what Doug and I are basically debating more so than anything is just do you do it this summer or do you do it next summer and that's not really a it's a nuanced debate but it's really not the crux of the issue the crux of the issue is the Browns feel like they have their winning quarterback they can win a Super Bowl for them that that is the issue and, and he's going to get going to get paid it's just really a matter of
3: and I know that there is a new theory out there. Maybe it's only among analytics people of should, you, should teams get in the realm of you draft a quarterback high, you have him for five years, and you move on. Like unless he's Mahomes, you move on and you start the cycle again. Right. Because if we think that a five-year window, the rookie quarterback window is what forces a team to get in shape, right? It's like right. renewing your vows. Yeah. Right? It's like, oh, we're renewing our vows? I better lose weight again. But if you never renew your vows, do you let yourself slide? I am not advocating for that. I am not trying to advocate for, hey, the Browns got in shape. They don't need Baker Bayfield anymore. Slide in a different quarterback. Don't pay him. Draft right. somebody else. I'm not doing that. That's not what the point of my article was. I'm intrigued by the idea. But I want to let somebody else do it. That's one of these things, right? It's an interesting idea. God forbid, who's the GM that's going to do it? that you get rid of. Cause if you give up on your quarterback, cause he's Jared Goff or Carson Wentz and he's not that good anymore. Okay. But if you're like, oh, he's good, but we can get another guy who's pretty good on a rookie deal. That's probably smart business. I have no idea who would ever have the guts to do it. And your fans would revolt.
2: Yeah. And that's what I expect y'all to say. I think we're dealing with two ends of the extreme here, which is what happens in this league. Either pay someone like their Patrick Mahomes or reboot on a rookie contract. And, all I'm advocating for is some forward thinking in this league and redefining upper middle class. But that's not that's not how this is going to play I, out. I, like, I, I guess
3: that. Alice, I'd be curious to think like, do you think that's realistic? Do you think that could actually happen? Like, it's a great idea. I just think Mary Kay and I push back on like, we don't even know what that would look like, like psychologically for the players and teams involved.
2: Yeah, Doug, it was the one question I didn't want to answer because I wanted to try and let this breathe and have some life. But for what Mary Kay said, there's it. it 1% chance it happens, agents wouldn't allow it, market value doesn't suggest it. It would take a bold GM, much like you said, saying, nope, every four or five years we're redoing this, it would take a bold GM to show Baker 26 average year salary, 26 mil and say, sign it, take it or leave it. It, 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 it sounds impossible to believe, but in theory, I'm, I'm falling in love with the idea, I really am.
1: And you know, the, what Doug is talking about is, is such an intriguing notion and there really are when you think about it there are a you know there there is that tier of elite quarterbacks the Aaron Rodgers the Tom Bradys the Peyton Mannings they transcend that five year cycle of okay now we can turn you in for somebody that is just as good there are whatever six seven quarterbacks in the NFL probably uh, that that are in at, at that level now we don't know maybe baker's going to be at that level like we don't know we've never seen him in the second year in a system so let's see if he's going to be that guy that can be here for you for 12 years he, he might be a 12-year guy we don't know
3: let me bring it a little NBA la- here. yep last word doug here we go we only did one topic. What are we doing for the next topic? We <laughs> went 45 minutes on one thing.
2: What we usually
3: from? do, right? It's a little bit like the NBA, Ellis, right? I mean, they have max contracts in the game. It's like Anthony Davis is on a max contract, and like so is Tobias Harris, right? And it's like, right. is Tobias exactly. Harris as good as Anthony Davis? And it's like, no, but he's a max player. So what does that mean? Are you not going to sign him because he's not Anthony Davis? Or are you going to say, well, he's good, and this is the going rate? Right? Quarterbacks are like max contracts. There's only so high you can go, I mean, it's one of the things, What's Patrick Mahomes worth? He's worth $120 million a year, but you can't pay him that. So that means that like Baker Mayfield's going to end up making like Mahomes money. Is he as good as Mahomes? No, but the Browns have to pay him that way. That's just the way it is. And you know what? Tobias Harris helps the Sixers win and it's okay if he's not Anthony Davis.
2: Right. And how do we avoid that market inefficiency? We introduce Ellis's upper middle-class quarterback theory, but- I highly doubt that. Anything else you guys want to get in on, on Baker Mayfield and, and Doug's quarterback column? When we talk Baker, we tend to go long, but anything else?
1: Well, if you haven't read the column yet, please go read it. He worked his tail off on this thing, and it really shows. And it's just the kind of uh, every once in a while, we really want to give you guys an, an amazing in-depth piece like this, and, and that was it.
2: Thank you, Mary Kay. All right, good stuff. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back on the other side. All right, we're back here on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name's Ellis Williams. This time we're bringing in Tim Bielek to talk NFL draft, of course. Tim, how you doing, man? Doing pretty good. I hope you guys are as well. Yep, yep. Same, same over here. So, loaded day, busy day in the NFL, Uh, franchise tag deadline stuff, Uh, Browns releasing Adrian Claiborne. Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network, of course, the draft guru, had a conference call today with NFL Media, and we learned a lot from him today. So that's where I want to start with you. Um, we were both fortunate enough to, to get a question in on it with him, uh, like a two-hour conversation, so, you know, really, really putting the time in for one question, right? But um, I thought your question was really interesting. I think you're coming up with a, a theme that I think will become popular opinion as we get closer to the draft, and you you really opened my eyes to it. Um, so let's just start there. What, what did you have to ask Daniel Jeremiah, the reason
0: for that, and what did you learn from how he responded to your question today? Well, what I was initially going to ask was looking at the top three um, center cornerbacks in this draft, but as the conversation went off, he, he – he Daniel Jormari, of course, went on to include Greg Newsome, the corner from Northwestern in that discussion, kind of putting him on par with J.C. Horn of South Carolina is something I, that was kind of new and interesting to me. Yeah. I like I liked Newsome a lot. I don't know if he was first-round caliber until today when he ran a 4-3-1 unofficial 40 at his pro day. Now 40 is not the end-all be-all, but 6-1 to run a 4-3-1 even if it's unofficial? You got my interest there, so I wanted to ask him with where, where the cornerback position was in this draft, the depth in this class. He, see, he basically said after the second round, it kind of falls off. If where the Browns sit at 26, if those those top four guys aren't there, we know Pat Tan and Caleb Farley definitely won't be there. They'll be gone in the first hour plus of the draft. What If Horn and Newsom were gone, do they reach and get another guy? Like, for example, Asante Samuel Jr., out of Florida State or something like that, and he basically said no. That there was a pretty big gulf between the Newsome Horn duo and then whoever was next in the draft. So he basically said if the Browns were going to go up, if they were going to go get a cor- one of those two guys, they might have to go up and get him. And especially with Newsome kind of flirting with that four three forty time, it he made it. He basically said it was doubtful that at least right now that Newsom would be available for them.
2: Yeah, so I think that's fascinating. We're we're landing in a real uh, tight spot in the draft with the Browns picking at 26, of course, and with corner being a, a position in need, you know, a coveted spot. So when you see those four guys, we assume the top two, the Browns really aren't going to have a shot at. I mean, we've seen those guys go as high as, I mean, right outside the top 10 to going even, I've seen like 10 and 11, 11 and 12, things like that that sort of puts JC Horn in a sweet spot and now bringing Greg Newsom in there. So first do you want to touch on those top two guys and just theorize if the Browns were able to grab them. And then after that, what is it you like about both JC Horn? And I know we talked a little bit about Newsom's speed and whatnot. What is it about those two guys um, that also now with what you learned from DJ position them as really that being the, the top four and the drop off in the golf in between there, explain what, why that golf exists.
0: Well, to start off real quick, with when it comes to certain and Farley, they're gonna have to make a gigantic leap up right. into the top 10 of the draft, something bigger than what the Steelers gave up two years ago in a trade with the Broncos for Devin Bush. That obviously has worked out well for Pittsburgh, they'd probably do it every day again and twice on Sundays. But when I look at <laughs> the next the two guys, yeah, when I looked at the next two guys, Horn and Newsom, I, I look at Their physical frames are very similar. They're both 6'1 guys. I think Horn plays a more physical brand of football than Newsom, but I think where Newsom stands out is ball skills. If you watch him against Ohio State, he did not play the whole game against Ohio State, but he's a guy who's 6'1, just a shade under 200 pounds. Um, not nothing to be the biggest guy, but the way he plays the ball is tremendous. It seemed like he really boosted his stock based on the fact that he ran well this season, didn't play a lot this year. Only played a handful of games, of course, even in the Big Ten where schedules were limited this year. Newsom didn't get the full slate of games, but when he played, he was impressive, and, of course, putting that time out. Again, t- say what you ever, want about the 40, whether it's overrated, underrated or, in my case, overrated, and only a small piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. but still, speed is speed. We talk about the Browns needing speed all the time. You get a six-one corner that can move opposite a 5'10, 5'10, 511 corner and Denzel Ward that can move. I think that's beneficial. And in this division, where a quarter of your games, about a quarter of your games are against Chase Claypool and T Higgins, you need a tall guy who can cover. If Newsom's there or JC Horns there, it's an easy it's it's starting to become a pretty easy decision to me. Just because I just because we'll get into it, we can get in this in the weeks to come. The edge rusher class is great. Jeremiah, Daniel Jeremiah also raved about the linebackers in this class. The he safety did. position is deep. I, I, you, I don't know. It might be a dangerous slope to pick based on the pecking order of depth in the class, but considering how corner is sort of top heavy in this draft when it comes to the first couple of rounds, combined with the fact that there's not a lot of good corners out there. And if the Browns are going to get one before the draft, it might have to come via trade. I'm starting to lean more towards corner if they can get one at 26.
2: It makes a lot of sense Tim and I understand your your pushback for you know positioning your board, your overall board based on depth of said position but that might be where this is trending with just the the natural value of having a corner gives a football team and really when you're looking at the Browns in particular the question marks at that number two corner spot. I mean, in a perfect world, we'd love to say greedy Williams pencil him in. He's, you know, number two pick from two years ago and he's going to play 900 snaps, but there's no way the Browns can operate as if that's an absolute, right? So what I want to ask you next is at what point do you start considering trading up? You know, let's say we, we get to pick 20 and we know that uh, you know, those top two guys Farley and Sertain are gone and you're looking at Horn and Newsome and you think that those two are falling to you at 26, but then before you know it, you know, someone at 22 or 23, all of a sudden grabs Horn. And now you're looking at just Newsome on the board. Is there a point where you just trade up to be aggressive to go get your guy? Are you cool with standing Pat at 26 and just pivoting? If both those corners are gone by the time they get to you, where, if we're putting your GM hat on, how important is it to you to go get, one of these top four guys and most probably the, the bottom two we're talking about here in Horn and Newsom.
0: I think obviously a lot of it's going to be predicated on what happens starting next Wednesday. When you look yeah. at the targets out there, free agency, Carl Lawson, not getting tagged is massive, John Johnson, the safety from the Rams, not getting tagged is massive. That could easily be where I would go try and target those two positions right off the bat. And then you kind of worry about linebacker with, Wherever we can with some depth pieces, and then that kind of puts corner in the spotlight. And then you've got, of course, the extra third rounder, the extra fourth rounder you get certainly would help if you want to trade up. But when I start to look at kind of junction points for corner, I kind of think of starting with the Arizona Cardinals at 16. I expect, yeah. of course, Sertan and Farley to go off by pick 12, I would imagine, until the 49ers. I imagine that's their floor at this point. I could be very wrong, of course, but. I look at I look at where the next set of picks are. The Vegas Raiders at 17, they need help all over that defense. They just released Marcus Joyner. They could be in the market for corner. Miami's not going to need help there. Washington, Chicago, Indianapolis needs an offense. The Titans, I think, might go off at the tackle after the disaster of Isaiah Wilson. Right. I actually wrote about that, my football insider, one of my uh, three misses already from the 2020 draft. But <laughs> you could be that – it's up there with some of the uh, classics up there, but getting back on topic, Tennessee probably is going to would lean more towards front seven. It's the Jets' offense, the Steelers' offensive line, and then twenty five, Jacksonville. They just took C.J. Henderson at corners, so yep. I think it. I think maybe you could be put yourself in a good spot in that twenty two to twenty three range if you want to trade up. I'm sure Browns fans would never want to trade up to twenty two ever again, but you're funny. Then I would, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's true. I'm sure there's still some scars there left behind, but... It's a damaging number. I get it. It's a damaging yeah. number. So why not pick number 23? It's a, It's been a much better number for Cleveland, and it makes sense because we don't know where the Jets are going to go with this rebuild. If they, trade, if they trade for Sean Watson and that pick goes to Houston, they might want extra picks. I can see the Browns maybe moving up, sending a third-rounder to the Jets to make sure they get the corner they want, and... I think when you're in a position that the Browns are where you don't need a lot of pieces, you just need some quality pieces, maybe you don't draft nine players. Maybe you trade for one, maybe you trade up for another. Because a team like this, you're not going to want to have nine rookies on the roster. At some point, you got to have veterans and you got to go quality over quantity.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think it's interesting you brought up 23. Uh, At the top of my head, I believe that jets pick would be from seattle due to the uh, jamal adams trade correct so that might be a pick that they're you know just not that attached to you know like i I don't know if that's exactly how front offices look at these picks but you know even the browns themselves have enough of a history of just dealing picks that they acquire you know because it it feels like oh we can gain even more assets off that original player there's probably some ego there that exists in, in building that way so 23 as a target I, I could envision. And for me, it would be the difference between just knowing that's your guy, like where the Browns board is positioned. They just have to be sure that that corner is the guy worth trading up for rather than letting it fall one way or another. Like if both those guys are on the board, when to pick 22 and 23, when we're talking, um, uh, newsome and and forgive me the, the third corner is blank. horn horn yeah yeah jc horn um horn and newsom if both those guys are still on the board then i would really like the trade-up you know because now you are you're you're not reacting as much as you are just going to get your guy where i where i start to wonder is if there's any panic that sets in when let's say you know jc horn goes at at you know in the 20 somewhere before the Browns make their pick. And then you're reacting. I also like that you brought up what happens in free agency. Cause I think that, of course this has they're tied together in, in such a key way, especially for winning teams like the Browns. And again, you make a great point about how just edge rusher is a position they can address in free agency and, and pretty clearly that they're going to with the release of Adrian Claiborne today, saving them $3 million. So look, you could, get stronger at end by both spending high capital at 26 on edge and signing a free agent or you, you double dip and you take care of one in free agency and one at 26 at corner. I, Tim, I'm, I'm curious. I know we still have like a month to go eh, more than a month until, <laughs> till we're till <laughs> the Browns are actually picking this, this evaluation process can feel long at times, but before we got on recording here, you seemed like you really were, settling in at going corner in the first round two quick questions before we, we switch gears quickly. Do you see yourself massaging yourself into a different stance in the first round, or is this kind of the, the point the, the Eureka moment you had where it's like, Nope, I've seen, I've got an accurate evaluation on this rookie class at edge and corner. I've got an accurate evaluation on this reagent class at edge and corner the Browns must address corner in the first round. Where do you fall and how much wiggle room are you
0: going to give yourself to,
2: to pivot out of this?
0: I think I'm kind of more into group two where that's kind of how it's falling. Now, of course, a lot can change in a week. I mean, by the time this goes up, the Browns could have agreed to a deal for Marshawn Lattimore considering uh, what's going on with the saints choosing the franchise, Marcus Williams, how they're going to get out of that salary cap mess and a half that they've got over there. right, But the way I kind of see it again, it, It comes down to the free agent market. I mean, we know what's at edge rusher. We know Carl Lawson's available. Trey Hendrickson's going to be available. Hassan Reddick didn't get the tag. The Browns should certainly be in the market for one of those three guys, potentially signing one of those three guys. Safety was another one I talked about. Again, of course, Marcus Williams, Marcus May getting the tag, but of course John Johnson's still out there. He's going to command some money. And then a corner, of course, we talked Marshawn Lattimore, Stephon Gilmore would have to be in trades. And then when I look at this draft, you've got those top four guys that we just, we've talked about. One could certainly follow them at 26. They might have to go up to get one, but if you don't take one, then you're kind of sliding into the end of the second round where you kind of have a different set of guys to deal with. I mean, you may be out of the range for Asante Samuel jr. From Florida state, who seems like almost a Denzel Ward clone size wise and athleticism wise. You look at Ifiatu Melafonwu, the tall corner from Syracuse, who kind of fits that profile. And then Elijah Balden from Washington, who's a popular pick for a lot of people. But I think it seems like he's more of a slot corner safety hybrid, and the Browns might be looking for a pure outside corner. I mean, I get that you probably want you, – you need slot corners in this NFL. They matter more than they ever have, but – I get the feeling if you're going to want a premier outside corner, you're either going to have to trade to get one of those two veterans that we talked about, or hope that one falls in your lap in the early to mid twenties.
2: Yeah. I, and I love that you brought up the slot corner dilemma here too. Cause I think that the Browns, of course, they, that's a spot they need to address. I'm not sure how acquiring three guys that, well, rostering Ward and greedy and then perhaps bringing back Terrence Mitchell and then getting one in the first round, who, is playing primarily outside and who is cool with sliding inside. So if the Browns don't go corner in the first round is what I'm trying to say, expect them to grab one in the second or third round and have them pencil in at that slot spot. Because once you get outside of that top four, you start seeing a lot of guys with that versatility and some guys that just pencil in it as slots. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, Tim. Um, We're going to pivot here for just, Some brief takeaways from what we learned from Daniel Jeremiah today. Of course, uh, NFL Network's draft guru uh, spent like two hours talking with us. And I mean, just a lot of interesting nuggets and bits of information. Besides the idea that if Daniel Jeremiah was given true serum, Kyle Pitts should go number two overall to the (laughs) New York Jets. He could not stop raving about Kyle Pitts today. That's one major takeaway I had. Other
0: than the Pitts love, uh, what stood out to you? I think he he came up with a name for linebacker that maybe some Browns fans hadn't heard of. It's Jamin Davis out of Kentucky. Now this is a guy who I got to double check the measurements. I believe he's about six foot four. As I type it up, everything here, looking up his measurements. I apologize uh, for doing this live, but six, uh, four, 234 pounds. That's, that's a yep. great frame for a linebacker. 43 solo tackles last season at Kentucky. They were, this was a team not too long ago that was kind of flirting with the SEC East and Davis, of course, two interceptions got, got a little bit of coverage ability, maybe some rawness in there, but certainly I think Jeremiah was even talking about, I I believe his first round potential. Maybe, maybe he's more of a second round option kind of in that mix with Jabril Cox from LSU who we've talked about. We both like, they don't, they don't address linebacker in free agency, that could be. That might not be a bad option to go for a, a tall linebacker with some athleticism, some movement ability, and as we've seen in his career, an ability to take the football away. Which certainly in this Browns defense, if we learn anything from twenty twenty, taking the football away is a premium.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. I was uh, surprised to hear that name too. Not in like a negative way, like I didn't think uh, DJ would like that kid, but it just was reaffirming. Like, okay, this is someone I got to pay more attention to. Like you said. Again, it's going to be interesting to see how the dominoes fall in free agency. Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, has both written and, and talked about possibly some interest there between Levante David, the, the Buccaneers veteran who's going to hit free agency, and the Browns. Of course, he's 31, but just coming off a of Super Bowl still seems like he has the burst to play sideline to sideline, can get into coverage, and, and just you know turn on the tape and see what he did to Travis Kelsey. Not that he won every rep, but... You know, probably some of the best football that Travis Kelsey's faced was that Tampa Bay defense, and Levante David had a lot to do with that. But for me, staying on linebackers, and I'm I want to just curious if you think I decoded this accurately, or if I'm looking too much into it. But I didn't hear as much Zavin Collins love as I thought. Now that was the one question I had for him. It listeners know I've been on this Zavin Collins thing for probably a, a month now, essentially since the Super Bowl that I'd love to see the Browns grab him at 26. In my question to DJ, I laid out why he really should fit the build as an outlier type prospect. I compared him to Makai Becton and Lamar Jackson, which could be completely unfair to Zayvon Collins. But all I meant by that was just when we're doing this draft evaluation process and we wonder why we miss on guys later, it tends to come back to that they had one or two athletic traits or things they did on the field that just were one of a kind, unique, unicorn-like. And for Zayvon Collins, you mentioned um, how Jamin Davis was 6'4", you know, 240. Zayvon Collins also 6'4", but he's about 260. And we'll see when those official measurements come in. But for a guy of that size, and we've talked about before, who, who can move the way he moves, and he moves like he's 20 or 30 pounds less, I was like, isn't this the guy who – when we look back could be the the prospect that it's like, ah, uh, how did he fall so late? And I thought his response to that question was interesting. He said, you know, I, he doesn't have the best instincts. I, I don't know if you can trust him inside as your traditional middle linebacker, despite comparing, saying earlier in the interview that one someone he talked to compared him to Brian Urlacher coming out, which I thought was interesting. But point being was, I just didn't think that DJ was all that excited about Zayvon Collins aside from, everything else everyone said about him which made me uh slowed my role on him slightly um any do you have any new feelings on zavin collins or is he still right where you you have him which is essentially what i got from dj
0: well backtracking levante david of course he's not going the browns re-upping with the bucks for the reports as everybody who listens to this podcast probably knows by now yep yep you've got that so Uh, But when I look at Collins, I thought it was interesting. Like there's the idea of one moving the edge and then he's basically say, then Jeremiah basically saying that Collins is not the greatest pass rusher. So I think the idea that he's got more defensive end frame than linebacker and you say, he's not, he's not a defense, not going to be a superstar pass rusher. That's what really kind of intrigued me is like, He's going to basically pretty much be limited to outside linebacker in a 4-3 base, inside in a 3-4 base. So you're going to pretty much be asking to do those things. And the instinct thing does also tell me he's going to be outside. Maybe that's just where he's best suited, where you have a guy who's in the middle of the defense kind of controlling everything, and then Collins just handles the coverage responsibilities on the outside. So maybe it didn't change too much, but I think it kind of – it says to me that maybe there's more of a limited role for Collins than maybe we're all thinking that he's as, – as much as some people maybe would compare him to Khalil Mack because of the rare athleticism and the fact that he's from a group of five school, he's not Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack is once-in-a-generation type of group of five prospect. Collins is going to be – Collins probably going to be first-round pick, but I think maybe that – the explanation he gave is kind of why Collins is that fringe first-second-round prospect.
2: Yeah. And and listeners that yep. Yep. For me, after Tim shared the Levante David news um, is me learning in real time that Levante David signs that contract. As Tim's (laughs) talking, I'm Googling. I was on a podcast with Mary Kay and and Doug before this, that clearly happened while we were recording. So, Mm -hmm. but it's a good lesson in this chaos that is free agency that we are pegging these mock drafts and trying to, you know, marry teams together to certain players. And until a lot of this free agency stuff falls we're not going to know exactly what these team needs are and who is even available in free agency when it opens in about a week. So there you have it. Your listeners are for the most part going to know this by the time it goes up. But Levante David, two year $25 million extension with the bucks. He's will not be an option for the Browns, of course, as Tim laid out for us there. So again, it it makes me wonder if the Browns They can go. They could go edge. They could go linebacker. They could go corner, or all of a sudden they they go receiver and surprise us all there. Uh, Tim, anything else you want to add um, from just from the DJ call? Anything on corners? Anything draft related? Uh, as we do this once a week with you, that you want to add before we get out of here?
0: Um, it's not relevant to the Browns, but I did think the Kyle Pitts thing is fascinating, and, isn't it? I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I personally wouldn't take him over receiver just because of the value of a receiver more so on the outside, especially for the Eagles at six. He he put them there. I thought that was fascinating to me that other than Jamar Chase, that would be the second best pass catcher in the draft. I mean, I love, like, every time, like, obviously, I watch a lot of college football every Saturday. Florida was usually always on at noon. It seemed like every other time I watched Florida, Kyle Pitts scored a touchdown. I could see him being a real problem for whoever gets, for whoever has to face him for the coming season. He's, He's probably the most interesting player to me and there there's a lot that goes into what i think he can really do as far as the way as football is getting more multiple more spread out having tight ends that could do those things as we saw we see seen with travis kelsey mark andrews and all those guys interesting piece.
2: yeah tim i hear that and for me i can't well like if 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 Pitts goes that high, he'll set records for, you know, highest tight end ever taken and, and things like that. What I can't figure out with Pitts aside from the incredible tape that he puts on in trying to tailor this back to the Browns is how do the Browns find a tight end that truly would unlock this offense and what Kevin Stefanski does, because what makes me worried about Pitts, which I don't think this is a great way to be, evaluate talent is just the high price you pay on because when you look at the history of this league the tight ends dominating the sport right now kelsey kittle waller you mentioned mark andrews for the most part i guess i don't i can't remember exactly where andrews went he might have been a little higher but you know kelsey kittle third round selections waller came out as a receiver and is a conversion so i'm just curious as to is there just is is there still an inefficiency at evaluating this position or is the premiums that you're just going to have to start paying for guys like Kyle Pitts to get them onto your roster, the new norm. And I think we're more times going to have to be able to tell for that one.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've got to mention also Varden Davis, I believe it was the number six pick. Obviously he's had enough, he had an outstanding career. TJ Hawkinson went eighth overall in 2019, really yep. blossomed in 2020. He's going to have to do a lot more with Kenny Galladay, probably no longer being in Detroit. I think, as much as we want to talk positions, I think we have to start also in some ways comparing this to basketball where basketball yeah. has become so much more positionless. It's not so much about what position you play. It's your frame and what you can do on the field, on the court. Football, maybe to a lesser extent offensively, can go the same way. If you've got a 6'5 guy who's got the receiving ability of any of the better receivers out there and he's got 250, 260 pounds and there's nobody on the field that can match up with that, who cares if he can't block, just split him out wide? You can get a blocking tight end, the fifth or sixth round, just kind of make him that tight end receiver hybrid guy that he can move all around the field. It takes creative coaches to be able to do that. And that gets into one of my big one of my bigger pet peeves when it comes to draft talk and draft evaluation. And I can talk forever about my draft pet peeves, but correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like anytime you hear debate about a player, it's always about what the guy can't do. Oh, this guy. Can't run. He's you know, he's got a four-seven forty or whatever. Oh, this guy's five ten. I'm like, well, that's I think in a way that's antiquated thinking. When I think now in the era of coaches that adjusts adjust their schemes to fit the talent they have, it's more about what a guy can do and accentuating their strengths. And I I would imagine that's kind of where the Browns are are trying to go a little bit. We saw that in 2020, of course, with Kevin Stefanski kind of altering his scheme a little bit to accentuate Baker Mayfield's ability to play out of the pocket in those bootleg rollouts and getting and creating different opportunities based on where a guy is at his best. I think that's where football has been heading and seems to be continuing ahead. And I think that's where a lot of draft talk should be is like, not that, not what a guy can't do. I remember I was watching, I think it was the, it was the Baker pick in 2018. I was rewatching the Kuiper footage the ESPN, uh, discussion Mel Kiper who said he was critical about it because of the lack of four eight speed. I'm like, you don't need to, don't need to be that fast to scramble. If you're a quarterback, you just got to be able to move and throw. It's just about what a guy is able to do and a good coach and a good coaching staff, a good front office should be able to see that they can find the positive traits and at least early in their career, find a way to accentuate that while they work on ways to build up the other weaknesses so that you can accentuate those strengths and that also comes into team building I think
2: a lot of truth there Tim and and perhaps that's an off-season pod segment Tim's draft pet peeves we'll
0: go for 90 minutes on it how's that sound <laughs> <laughs> it might not be as uh, much of a rant as Doug does I have a great one for the number one pick that we can save for another time because I have a bone to pick with how the number one pick is done that's fun I I
2: want to follow up on that later i'd love to get me you and doug on a podcast that sounds like
0: a two-hour segment
2: um we got a lot to do in the future regarding this draft as we keep building towards it and evaluating after i love what you said about positionless basketball that's where football's headed positionless and hopefully this is positionless podcasting right i'm not a host you're not a guest we're just
0: having a conversation right absolutely just two guys just chilling over a zoom screen talking football i mean that's almost like living the dream there That's what's up. That's what's up.
2: All right. So, Tim, thanks for the time. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. For Tim Bielek, I'm Ellis Williams signing off. Thanks for listening, y'all.